Turn in your Bibles to the fourth chapter here of the book of Revelation. And before we begin tonight, I want to remind you and, and bring it to your attention that from here on out, you're going to see the absence of something that we hold dear. That's the church. The church is not on earth anymore. The church is in heaven. And so these events are the vision that John has of things that are still yet to come tonight. But I would also share with you at the same time tonight, these events could unfold in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Amen? We, we don't know when the Lord's going to sound that trumpet. We do not know when the rapture is going to happen. But we do know that we are closer than we have ever been. That as we watch the time clock, Israel, begin to tick towards those final moments in the age of grace. We're now getting a glimpse of what may well be on the near future, the near horizon, even as we sit here tonight. And so as we pick up in verse 4, verses 4 to 8 tonight, and the 24 elders, this amazing heavenly scene, would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful tonight to be able to come to this amazing place. Lord, gather together as your family, as your church. Lord, for the sole purpose of allowing you to speak to us by the power of your word. And so, Lord, we set aside all the busyness of the week, the things of this day. Lord, maybe even the things that occurred while we were driving here tonight. God, would your spirit rule and reign and would it accomplish all that the spirit wills tonight. Lord, would you do in our lives. So we give you this time. Make your word, Lord, alive to us. Cut through all of the things of our lives. God, speak to us by the power of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 4 here in Revelation chapter 4. The church, John has seen this amazing heaven. The, the, the door is open in heaven. Remember that it has already been said, come up here. He's now viewing the scene that is in the heavenlies. And around the throne there were 24 thrones. And Notice very carefully that there is a central throne, and around that central throne are 24 additional thrones. It's not a single throne. It is one throne surrounded by 24 thrones. Very, very necessary that you understand, not talking about the same throne. But there are 24 thrones, and on the thrones, plural, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne, notice the transition between the singular and the plural, and from the throne proceeded lightning, thundering, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne of God, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. And the second living creature was like a calf. And the third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen? Amen. The heavenly scene. It's a picture, it's a glimpse of the throne room of God. And so here, John, as he authors these words, begins to unveil a scene that one day every one of us will be privy to who knows the name of the Lord, who's committed your life to Him. You are a child of God. Someday you'll be able to step into that scene as part of the heavenly crowd. The church is called home as we attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we begin this study tonight, and it's important to realize that these things are repeated throughout Scripture. This is not just a New Testament uh, picture that's here. This, this particular picture is given to us multiple times throughout uh, the Old Testament as well. And so we have the 24 thrones that are around the central th- throne. Uh, this t- number 24 occurs only six times in the entire uh, Old Testament, and every case... It is associated with the priests of the Old Testament. There were 24 courses of priests in the Old Testament times. They would divide up the Torah. The Torah would be taught by those 24 courses of priests. And when they finished, they would turn right back around and begin again. So there was a constant presence of the Word of God in this scene, even when it was here on earth. And so the picture begins to now shift to heaven. There are three factors here that we're going to look at in a moment. But we want to ask, answer the question, really, uh, who are these guys? Who, who are these elders that are gathered around, sitting on the throne of God? And because this takes place directly after the rapture of church, before the tribulation has begun, uh, just as all of the priests of Israel represented the totality of Israel, there were 24 elders of the priesthood, one day, so the church will be represented in heaven. Notice that these elders are dressed in white. Very important. What are the colors of the white robes of the church once we get into glory? Amen? We are going to be bathed, clothed in, covered in the righteousness of Christ. White robes. Notice that they are also wearing crowns. We'll get to those crowns in a moment. Because, again, no one is worthy to stand in the presence of the Lord uh, wearing a kingly crown, a diadema. But you can wear the victor's crown, the Stephanos, those deeds done in the body. And so this is a picture of those who have been gathered together in heaven after the rapture of the church who have fulfilled uh, the work that God has called them to. And these are really the, the saints, if you will, represented before the throne of God. And again, this is another picture that gives us a clear indication Uh, that the church is going to be taken home because they're represented now here in heaven. And so as you look at these things, remember that one day uh, we're all going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the deeds done in this body. We'll stand before the Bema seat. Uh, There's another judgment. That judgment you don't have to worry about because you're not going to face that white throne judgment, that great white throne judgment. That is for unbelievers alone. But you are going to face the Lord for the deeds that you've done in this body. And for those deeds, there will be crowns given. And if you have on this earth served the Lord faithfully, uh, you'll receive a crown. You'll receive many of them uh, should your life have been spent in the service of the Lord. And so in essence, these 
uh, elders represent uh, you and I before the throne of God. And so it moves, we move on to the thrones. And I want to remind you, and you can turn if you'd like to Daniel chapter 7. I want to look at a portion of that. Because as I said, these thrones are not new to us. I remember that Daniel, uh, writing uh, more than half a century before the birth of Christ, uh, picks up this theme in Daniel chapter 7. And in verse 1 it says, For in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions while he was on his bed. And when he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts, Daniel spoke and said, In my vision I saw by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts came up from the sea, each a different color. And he goes on to describe these beasts. And then notice as you get down to verse 9, And I watched until the thrones were put in place. If you happen to have a King James Bible, this is one of the passages of Scripture where there is a minor error in the translation of the original language. And so it does not say, as it says there in the King James, cast down. It says to be put up. And it is a very different rendering if you get that correctly. And so as you look at those words, the thrones are set up. So the heavenly scene here is the same heavenly scene that John now sees in the book of Revelation. These thrones are put up, and the elders are seated upon them. And notice who is on the central throne. We're told here, and the Ancient of Days was seated. So you have the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and the thrones were put in place around the throne. His garment white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, and fiery steam issued forth. And then before him a thousand thousands ministered to him. Guess where the church is in all of this? in those thousands of thousands, before the throne of God. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court was seated. Guess who the court is? The same 24 elders. The 24 elders seated with God. And the books were open. Notice plural used there for the word book, also a correct rendering. There are three of them actually mentioned in the book of Revelation. John sees this whole thing being filled as the elders take their place before God. And again, they're not to be worshipped. They're not being venerated. They're ruling and reigning because ultimately we are going to be a nation of priests and kings. Amen? A holy priesthood, in fact, is what we're called. And so this is the beginning of that time where God has taken the church home. We're going to be coming back with him at the second coming as he descends to this earth to finalize uh, all of the chaos that will ensue during the great tribulation. Unbelievably important occasion. And so these elders show the respect by being seated around the Lord, but not in his place. He alone sits on his throne in heaven. The elders simply gathered around. And they represent uh, you and I. It's quite clear when you look at Daniel's uh, writings on this. And so that as John sees them, 
Now they're filled. When Daniel saw them, they were empty. Pretty easy to understand why that would be. Amen? If Daniel is not seeing the heavenly scene that will one day be, but he's seeing heaven as it was then, he sees them without the elders because there were no elders, because there was no completed plan of salvation. Those who would have been uh, the Old Testament saints would have died in faith. They would have still been in paradise, that compartment of Sheol that held the righteous dead, the other compartment holding the unrighteous dead, so the thrones had no one on them. And so God alone in heaven with the Lord seated at his right hand. And so there they are. And these specific elders begin to minister and they're figures of of royalty in a sense and it's very important to to get this because they have been rewarded for their service to the king they are in that sense the royalty of heaven but they are not royal as christ is they're part of the body of christ and yet they're simply the you know i don't know whether that's you know pastor chuck and billy graham and steve i don't know who it is I don't know whether it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and a smattering of people from throughout the church age, but I do know this. It's going to represent the totality of the body of Christ. All of us. Every last one of us. will have a representative, so to speak, during that time. If you remember back in 1 Chronicles, as we're kind of reading through that, if you're reading with us, we've been in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, we're going through Ezra. Uh, If you remember, there were the courses of the priesthood and there were the elders of the priests. So even in the priesthood, there was the hierarchy of the priests. There were some priests who had a a place in the order of priests that were higher than the rest of the priests. And so it simply is talking about spiritual maturity. And they had a role that they played in the church while it was here on earth. And they're now in heaven. I've always wondered, you know, because we know that We're going to get there by grace and through faith. Amen? Nobody's getting there because you worked your way there. But there are going to be a few folks that are going to get in because Scripture tells us by the skin of their teeth, as if by fire. Okay? They're like the flames of Hades are lapping up and they're still going to make it in by grace. I'm pretty sure that's not the guys on the thrones. Okay? That more than likely is is the deathbed conversion dudes at the very end. I don't know. Specifically, there will be those who have served the Lord beginning to end. You think of the great people. Of, you think of the Amy Carmichaels, and you think of the Charles Wesleys, and, and even as our, our own era and time. You think of those great men of God, Andrew Murray, you know, E.B. Simpson. I, I don't know who that's going to be, but I know it's going to be people who have spent their life for the cause of Christ. I do believe that it's likely that you might find all 12 of the apostles seated on one of those thrones. I think that could very well be. Maybe there will be one representative from every one of the 12 tribes, whoever was the most spiritual. I can't tell you. But I know what they're going to represent. That's every last person who by grace through faith has made their way into heaven because of the amazing grace of God. And so is there seated there on their thrones we're going to join in with them in this heavenly scene 
And if you remember, during the time of the Old Testament priesthood, apart from their sacrificial duties, one of the responsibilities of the priests was to lead in worship. That was one of the things that they did. And so it's very clear that there's singing going on around the throne. This is a joyous occasion. And so you can kind of see the whole work of the worship that we would include. There's the singing. There's the crying out of the Lord. There's the speaking forth of the word of the Lord because he is the one who was and is and is to come. Amen? That is a direct quote from your Bible, by the way. It is actually a definition of the one who is the Almighty, because when we use that term, it's almost always is Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the Almighty One. We would also call him El Shaddai, El Gabor, the Mighty One. We would use all of his names, put them together and say, here he is. And so here the Lord is seated with the kingdom of priests, us, being represented. And so the church, both the Old, the New Testament believers, and again, when we say Old Testament believers, Abraham, by faith, believed. Amen? Rahab, read Hebrews 11. By faith, they believed. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. And he who ascended first descended. He set those captives free, took them with him, and they're now represented in heaven. For us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we see this amazing storm warning unfold before us. And notice what it says, And out of the throne, verse 5, the first part, proceeds lightnings and voices and thunders. This is this incredible heavenly picture. These are similar descriptions used very regularly Uh, spoken of the the word of God uh, coming forth. And you know of one very specifically. Uh, It began with a guy who didn't speak very well, a stutterer named Moses. When he went on to the mountain, what proceeded out from the mountain was this very same thing. Amen? And what was happening at that time? Moses was receiving the word of the Lord, and out of the mouth of God proceeded lightning and thunder, so much so that the people trembled at the base of the mountain, and in fact, they figured Moses was a dead man. They're all thinking, he ain't coming back, let's worship the golden calf. (laughs) So they all cash in their jewelry, make a golden calf. No, we didn't do that, it just hopped out of the fire. And God's saying, look, I'm speaking here. Heaven is stirring, heaven is rumbling. You remember there in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, this this amazing scene. We're going to see it again as God acts in history. You know, right now, we're privileged to be in the age of grace where we now worship the Lamb of God. But one day, the Lamb of God is coming back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? And when He comes back, He's coming as a conquering King. And he will come dressed for battle. And he will come to defeat sin and to bring the reign of the enemy to an end. Right now we live in that time of grace. And so those rumblings, I believe, maybe are even beginning today. You can see them in our world. You can see the rumblings within the church. Throughout the book of Revelation they will happen. And they signify the exclusiveness and the untouchability of God. 
And if you remember, as Moses was there, as he began to, you know, who is this, Lord? And God said, well, you can't actually see me, because no man can see me and live, but I will pass by and I'll let you see my back. So hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. And so the glory of the Lord shone on Moses, and as Moses received that glory, he began to glow, and that glow stayed with him to the bottom of the mountain, so much so that when it began to fade, he covered his face so that no one would know that the glory of the Lord was departing. But God was speaking to him. God had clearly given him a picture uh, of his presence at that time. And so this is a picture of the presence of God. And so before the throne are these servants that are now attending to the Lord. And so notice as it goes on, we see the picture of the lamps. We see the picture of the sea. We, we see this incredible heavenly scene to where before the throne there is a glassy sea like crystal. There, there are these lamps that are burning and they represented the seven spirits of God. Not the first time we've seen that either. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. You can see this once again there spoken of by the prophet Isaiah nearly 700 years before the coming of the Lord. Speaking there, verse 1 in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse's rod was pretty much dead, amen? It didn't look good for Jesse's tribe. And out of that would come, of course, the Messiah. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And eventually from that singular tribe through the lineage of David would come none other than Jesus, who is the Christ. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What happened at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit of the Lord descended upon him like a dove and rested upon the King of kings and upon the Lord of lords. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so this is a picture of the triune God in heaven. All that God is, the full work of the Spirit, the full work of the Son, He's already there. We've seen Him previously. God the Father, ancient of days, and the heavenly scene is unfolding before us. And while there's no temple in heaven in a material sense, not as there was here on earth, the whole of heaven is His sanctuary. Amen? So much so that the prophet Isaiah saw the train of his robe flowing down from heaven and his feet touching the earth. In other words, his kingdom is forever and ever and ever. He was the one and is the one who was and is and is to come. He was before and he will be thereafter. But there are very definite parallels between the earthly temple and the heavenly sanctuary. Notice these things. In the earthly temple, you had the Holy of Holies. Amen? That was the most holy place. You had the holy place, which stood, in essence, outside of the veil of the temple, and in there, three principal implements, the table of the showbread, the altar of incense, and the, bronze, or the, the lampstand, which held the, lamp, the seven candlesticks. And so it, there was a holy of holies. Here you have the throne of God. In that 
holy place, outside of the Holy of Holies, you had the seven-branched candlestick. Here you have seven lamps before the throne of God. There you had the bronze labor. That would be out in the courtyard. It represented the place where the priest would go. And after they had sacrificed and, and made both the burnt offering and, and, and the, the blood offering, as they would take the blood to sprinkle it into the temple, they would be going in, cleanse themselves, having washed in this bronze labor. It was actually known as the sea. And so they would wash their hands in it. And it would take away the filth, the stain of sin. And here you have this giant sea of glass. There you had the cherubim, two of them, one on either end of the Ark of the Covenant, one on each side of the mercy seat, that place where God met his people. And here you see the four living creatures, which are actually angelic beings surrounding the throne of God. In the earthly temple you had the priests. Here you have the elders of all of the church gathered around the throne attending uh, to the things of the Lord. You had the brazen altar there. That was the place, uh, a giant raised platform and on it a grill work and that brazen altar would be stoked hot and the offering would be brought and it would be burnt up and consumed and some of it would be burnt away and taken up to God and some of it would be reserved for the sustenance of the priests and their families. And so here we see this incredible altar of the Lord. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 6. There's an altar of incense. There's also an altar of incense here in the heavenly picture in chapter 8. You have the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that Ark, the representation of three things. You had the manna, the clay pot that contained the manna. You had Aaron's rod that budded and the Word of God. The Ten Commandments all inside of the Ark. And above the Ark, on the, the mercy seat, on the lid, these cherubim. And so, very similar picture. All of the heavens is God's sanctuary. Amen? The whole of heaven is his sanctuary. It's just this grand picture. And so it's no wonder to us that the Lord instructed the Jewish people to make the sanctuary a whole like heaven. Amen? So when we come to the sanctuary of the Lord, we're hoping to get a glimpse of heaven. Amen? That's the purpose when we study God's word, we're hoping to get a glimpse of the Lord. He resides in heaven. We study his word. We take in his word. We're nourished by his word. And as we're nourished by his word, we take in some of that heavenly sanctuary. When we get to the eternal state, there'll be no need for the whole universe will be his sanctuary then. Amen? There will be a sanctuary during the millennial reign. There will be a temple on the, on the earth at that time, and Christ will reign in it. But by the time we get to Revelation 21, the throne will be on a glassy sea. And so at this picture of this incredible scene, they're all gathered around. It, it kind of gave them a picture. John's seeing this, and he's going, man, that looks a whole lot like what we've been told from the very beginning. They could have thought back all the way to the wilderness tabernacle because these same things were there. As they were instructed to build this portable tent of the meeting, and they were given this incredible picture. Do you remember what the fence was made out of that lined it, that went around the, the court? It was a white linen fence, the righteousness of God. What are the colors of the robes of those thousands of thousands that are gathered? 
you see it's a picture. So throughout God's dealing with mankind, he's been telling us the same story. I am a holy God, and I require holiness of my people. And when we get there, that's exactly how we're going to be. Praise God. Because right now, we're not doing so good sometimes. Amen? As the children of Israel, interestingly enough, as they would minister in the courtyard, one of the songs that they would sing would be the song of Moses, reminding them of what Moses got from the Lord. There in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 31, 32, he is true, he is righteous, he is holy. And so God began to speak to them in this incredible way. He would then talk to them about the lamps and the sea. He says, look, instead of this crystal sea that, that the priest would see, it, w- it was kind of a murky crystal sea, to be quite honest. It was a giant basin. And in fact, in, in Herod's temple, as he expanded the temple and made it much more glorious, before it was destroyed by Titus in AD 70, in the courtyard of the temple complex, travel with us to Jerusalem, you'll see the model of the temple complex uh, into scale, and you see this giant basin. It held 16,000 gallons of water. And so they would go, and they would pray a prayer over the water, that the surface of the water would be still, so that it would reflect the holiness of God. And what it was doing was saying to them, look, as I stare into this, I only want to see who I am in you. When you stare into the face of the Lord, your hope is to only see Him. Amen? And so again, a picture, this glass sea out in front of them. Those lamps lit, signifying the work of the Spirit in the church. Do you remember how many churches there were? Seven, amen? How many pastors were there? Seven. How many lamps are there? Seven. God continues to use that number of completion. Look, this is, this is me. This is the totality of my work. And then we see these amazing living creatures. Oddly enough, as you think on these living creatures, sometimes we make things excessively difficult. I think it's very clear who they are. Verse 6, the second half. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes before and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third creature had a face of a man, the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. You can see again, it's very, very similar to what Daniel the prophet saw. It's also very similar to what the prophet Ezekiel saw and the prophet Isaiah saw. So when God deals with mankind, he gives us a picture and he makes it clear. But we do need to be Bereans. We need to study God's word. And he says of them, the fourth creature was like a flying eagle and the fourth of the living creatures, each of them had six wings. The number four is the number of earth. It's the totality of earthliness, if you want to look at it that way. And so they represent the totality of all that has ever happened here. 
and the re- they never rest day and night. Notice what these beings are there for, what they do. They never rest day or night, and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and which is and which is to come. And so we see here the combination of these visions come together. Ezekiel chapter 1, chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 6. And you see the likeness of the lion, the calf, the man, and the eagle. They parallel that of the lion, the ox, and the eagle. And though Ezekiel, each living creature, had four faces on it, here it seems to be representative of just simply seeing the the being from the front side. And so it's not different in that sense. It's the same, but just from the singular side. And so they represent several things to us. The lion is, of course, the king of all the animals. Amen? Uh, it's not something you want to run upon on foot while you're wandering through the uh, sub-Saharan African desert. Okay? It's not a good thing. You're going to lose. King of the animals. The strength, the vigor of a bull. We call it, when the stock market's doing well, what do we call it? We call it a bull market, do we not? Why? Because it's a symbol of strength. Always has been throughout time. It actually began with the Assyrians. We see the man. And of course, man's problem has always been he thinks more highly of himself than he ought to. Amen? Isn't that what happened when God said, Look, if I leave these guys together, they are going to conquer the world. So I'm going to confuse their languages and I'm going to send them all over the place. Because they're actually pretty crafty little dudes. Man has been endued with wisdom. Given the ability to think through things. We are not remotely the most powerful animals on the face of the earth, if you want to look at it that way. We were created in the image of God. So we have some things that bears and lions and tigers don't have. Amen? Oh my. And then you have the eagle. The eagle soars above everything, completely unaffected. They only go where they want to go. You watch an eagle. We were up at June Lake a, a couple of years ago, and I'm sitting there having a cup of coffee with my feet propped up on the deck of this condo we're staying. All of a sudden, this eagle just came out of nowhere, and it, I was so jealous. It got like a trout like this long, just like I would be out there all day and never even see that fish, and he's just like... Poof. Gone, got it. See ya. Total domination of the animal world. The eagle comes and goes as it wants. And so the emphasis on these things is the nature of these creatures. And they represent the fullness of God's attributes and the fullness of man's abilities here on this earth. And so God is saying, look, these creatures that surround me, uh, each of them, notice, had six wings. Isaiah 6.2 parallels this passage. They had four wings in Ezekiel, but they're the same message. They're crying something out. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Parallels the cry of the cherubim, the seraphim. It says, look, they're the angels of God doing the bidding of God, taking care of all of the things that mankind is engaged in on this earth. And so it asks, we ask another question of ourselves. Why were there four creatures? The number four is actually the number of the whole earth throughout Scripture. How many rivers were there that flowed around Eden? There were four, amen? How many cardinal directions are there? North, south, east, west. There's four, amen? How many 
empires led up to the end time in Daniel chapter 2? Four. How many world empires will there be in the end? Four. How many chariots of the horsemen are there as we get to the end of the book of Revelation? Four. How many horsemen go out to devastate the earth? Four. How many corners of the earth are there? Four. How many winds or quarters of heavens are there? Four. They represent the creation of man. Everything that man has ever dabbled in. Every single thing. And so it's very significant that these angelic beings that surround the throne of God have the totality of mankind in view all the time. Now God can also see everything that's going on. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He's everywhere at once. He knows all things. You're never going to pull the wool over his eyes. You're not going to catch him sleeping. He's not going to be napping one day. But these angelic beings are also engaged in the things that are going on uh, in a heavenly sense that take care of the earth. And we saw these beings initially uh, quite some time ago, uh, and you would know it as the Garden of Eden. Amen? Do you remember who it was? It was guarding uh, the tree of life. The way to the tree of life, it was the cherubim, was it not? Why? Because God said, if I, if I let them get there, they will begin to rule the whole world. And so he sends these angelic beings uh, to do what maybe regular angels are not capable of doing. Interestingly enough, the cherubim were located in very strategic places throughout the Old Testament, with regard to the children of Israel and the temple. Several places that you could find them. They were actually uh, in, they were embroidered on the, on the veil that guards the way into the holy place. There was a cherubim on each side of that. There were two cherubim actually on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. Uh, when God spoke, in fact, he spoke in Numbers chapter 7, uh, in Second Kings chapter 19, First Chronicles, we see the place that the dwelling place of God was actually described as between the cherubim. That's where he was. So he's saying, look, I wasn't kidding when I told you that. These angelic beings are with me here in the heavenly place. The psalmist would transfer that idea right into the tabernacle service, and they would see the, the cherubim guarding the reigning Lord. In other words, there at the mercy seat where God met the people, there on that one day of the year, on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where the priest has offered up a sacrifice, first for himself, his own family, and then for the people of Israel, as he would come back into the, into the holy place first, and then into the holy of holies, the most holy place as he would go into the Ark of the Covenant and he would stand there and he would bring the blood and he would sprinkle it for Leviticus 17 says, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Amen? And so, who was guarding that place? It was the cherubim. They were saying, look, this is a holy secret. That secret got revealed at the cross of Christ. Amen? The, the Old Testament, they were, they were almost there. The Jewish people were that close. They actually could see it. The high priest would divulge what was going on in there. It was actually a picture of our redemption. The grace of God 
taken care of by the holiness of God. You see, the grace of God also requires of us the holiness of God. That's our response to the grace of God. And so this heavenly scene is really a picture of God's grace played out in each one of our lives. These cherubim were directly connected in that way. In Isaiah 37, Hezekiah prays to the God who dwells between the cherubim. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10, God is seen as traveling on a chariot and is borne on the wings of these cherubim. In Isaiah 6, we see the seraphim, another hierarchy of angels. And they're the ones that fly to the altar. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the land of a people of unclean lips. And so the seraphim take the coals from the altar, and they cleanse his lips. You see, the only way that you can be cleansed is to be touched by God. Amen? And so for the Lord, I took the intense burning of the Lord, because he does burn that away, unless you give it to him, then he'll just take it. And he says, look, I'm now clean. They purged the sin by God's method of provision. And so here in Revelation 4, we see the cherubim and the seraphim linked together. And here he's described as the one who was. That is the most prominent, the coming first one. It's the concentration, if you will. You see, sometimes we forget that when Moses was inquiring of God, look, I, I don't think I can go to Pharaoh. I'm not, you know, all that good with words. Whom shall I say sent me? He said, you just tell them that I am that I am sent you. Which is actually the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. It means I am past, I am present, and I am future. I always was, I am today, and I forever will be. That's who's going to go for you. And so what do the cherubim, what do the seraphim understand? He is the one who was, he is the one who is, And he is the one who is to come. That's why it breaks into a doxology next. A doxology is nothing more than a hymn of praise. That's what it means. You see these heavenly creatures get it. They understand it. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Holiness, by the way, can only be ascribed to God. Man is incapable of being holy. We can have holiness transmitted to us but we ourselves are incapable of being holy because the moment we would be holy, we would be unholy two seconds later by bragging about our holiness. Amen? (laughs) It's just like, not going to happen. But God is permanently holy. And so the thrice repetition of this says, He is holy. He was holy. He will always be holy. It's the same context. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He was holy, he is holy, he'll always be holy. Always. Because he is the Lord God Almighty. 
He doesn't change. The Lord says of himself, I change not, says the Lord. And so as these beings worship God by repeating this over and over and over. You know, I, had, I actually had a junior higher ask me one time, man, heaven, it sounds like it's going to be really boring. We only need to know like one word and a couple of phrases, like holy, we need to say that forever. And then the one who was, every time all the angels are doing it, I, I, I looked at him and I said, well, that's true. But to say it with complete holiness is a totally different matter. With a complete understanding of the fullness of God's character and nature and who he is and what he is and, and why he wants what he wants out of us is a completely different nature. He alone is almighty. There's no one like God. You're not going to get bored of trying to understand God. As we saw last Sunday night, the heavens declare his handy. Read Psalm 8. If you, if you can read Psalm 8 and go out and stare at the night sky, um, not as easy to do here because we can't actually see. There is a sky up there. <laughs> Believe it by faith, okay? It's, there are stars up there. There's galaxies up there. The heavens declare his handiwork. The moon, the stars. And so the cherubim say, look, he is the Almighty. No wonder they're singing a song of praise to him. But this is a transitional place because this heavenly scene is God warming up to judgment. The trumpets are going to sound. The scrolls are going to be unrolled. The bowls will be poured out. And so God is saying, John, as you see these things, remember who I am. I am holy. And no one can be in my presence without that holiness. Praise God for the cross of Christ, which has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Because without it, no man sees God. That's what your Bible tells you. You're not getting there on your own merit. But God is actually reminding us, look, when I take the church away, the restrainer of the evil in this world, which is the Holy Spirit, which is indwelling the church right now, when that is removed, you think the world's bad now. It's going to get infinitely worse. We have some time, but I don't think it's much time. There's some interesting things that we'll be looking at in the next couple of months. For those of you that care about such things, could it be that the Lord might come on the Feast of Trumpets, on the final blood moon? I don't know. But I know this. It's only happened eight times that we've had these alignments, eight times in 2,000 years. Could it be? I don't know. But I know this, our charge is to go preach the gospel to the entire world. Amen? Amen? That's why we're going to Samoa. That's why everybody just came back from India. That's why we're going to Mexico. That's why you need to tell your family about Christ. That's why you need to minister to those in your neighborhood that the cross of Christ is the only way that anyone sees heaven. Amen? Because he's a holy God. 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you change not, Lord. You have always been as you are right this very instant. Lord, you have never ceased to be any less than holy. Lord, you haven't changed. You haven't changed your mind about mankind, our behaviors. You, you don't now accept things that you once didn't accept. Lord, you haven't changed one iota. You change not. And so, God, we pray tonight that we do the changing. Lord, that you would mold us and shape us. And Father, if there's anyone here tonight who's never professed Jesus Christ as Lord. Your grace right now is crying out to them. Lord, your cross is inviting them. That door is open. They just need to step through it. Lord, you're knocking. Your word says if we'll open the door, you'll come in and you will sup and us with you. And so, Father, as we close tonight, We have prayer warriors up front. We pray that your goodness, your gospel, will reach out to the lost. Lord, they'd be convinced, as you, Jesus, said, you are the way, and you are the truth, and you are the life, and no one comes to the Father but by you. It's not through religion, it's not through church attendance through a personal relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's by accepting the grace gift. And so, God, work by your Spirit tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.